Word-rooted prayer and worship, keeping your heart close to the flame. This is part two that was actually started two Sundays ago when you count World Impact. New Testament worship and the 21st century church. So two weeks ago, I should maybe just make a little tiny review. We started tracing the... um, trajectory of worship in the New Testament. And I said we were going to look at four New Testament passages. We looked at one. We looked at the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And ten times in his conversation with that woman, Jesus uses some form of the term worship. That's ten times in five verses. And the first point we kind of zeroed in on was that worship had to do with receiving living water. Jesus makes clear that the root of worship has a definitive starting point. It's not rooted in anything psychological. It's not primarily anchored to feelings or location. It's relational. It's spiritually spiritually created by devotion to Jesus Christ, God the Son. And so Jesus, in trying to introduce this woman to living water, he does, he does two things. Surprisingly, he exposes her sin. And I mentioned how striking it is because by all modern accounts, this is a big mistake. As far as we know, this is the only conversation Jesus had with this woman. I mean, a little follow-up maybe later on in the chapter. He doesn't know her. He doesn't address her by name. They've probably never met before. And Jesus cannot end his very first conversation with this woman, this seeker. Jesus cannot end the conversation without pointing out her sin. We talked about that for quite a while. Is that a mistake? Is he just being a little legalistic, a little harsh with this poor woman, just a seeker after truth? Living water follows repentance and confession. There's there's kind of a counterintuitive truth here that applies. Divine, sometimes even blunt exposure of sin Is it a negative experience? If I will wisely embrace it, it's the first step to the quenching of my life's deepest thirst. But we don't look at it that way anymore, and Jesus is going to correct that with this woman. I said there were two things. The second thing Jesus shows this woman, that the living water of true worship, worship in spirit and in truth, what it does is it, it kind of trains the heart to see that only living water, only the presence of Jesus himself has the power to end um, the tail-chasing worship of other things. Drink this water, Jesus says to her, you won't thirst again. So there's something about the prioritizing of the lordship of Jesus that turns all of our hearts from the lesser bondage-producing idolatries that are just so common in the seeds that grow in our hearts. Worship always begins 
with purity of heart, repentance. Jesus talks about that, pointing out her sin. And secondly, turning away from some form of idolatry to the prioritizing and bowing before Christ as Lord of all. If you'll come to terms with me, Jesus says, you won't be thirsty anymore. Worship ends that hamster wheel that is so easy to get on, chasing things that won't ultimately satisfy. That's kind of where we ended two weeks ago. Today, I want to quickly look, quickly look at three other New Testament passages as they relate to New Testament worship and the 21st century church. So if that was point number one, the woman at the well, here's point number two this morning. Nothing takes the place of corporately waiting on God if we are to remain full of the Holy Spirit. If we took the time, we can't, to kind of read right through Acts 1 and Acts 2, you would see more than just amazing demonstrations of God's presence and power. You would see a pattern that God lays down to prepare his own people to receive life and power from his hand. Now, as Pentecostals, we're pretty good at emphasizing what happened to the church in Acts 2. Maybe we don't talk quite as much about the fact that the church waited together in that upper room, seeking God's face for, do you know how long they were up there? Ten days. Ten days straight. Ten days of praying. Ten days of kneeling. Ten days of pacing back and forth. Ten days of kneeling again. Ten days of praying for each other. Ten days of maybe singing the odd song. Ten days of bowing and praying again. Ten days of crying out to God. What's the lesson here? I'll tell you what I think. Most of us aren't as instantly sensitive to the Spirit of God as we would like to think. And most of us aren't as instantly attentive to the Spirit of God as we might like to think. I probably have a tendency to easily overestimate my natural, latent spirituality. Even when, like the early church, we have a clear promise from the Lord for provision and blessing. Even when it's clear there's no unwillingness on the part of Father God to impart and empower, we're still not instantly ready to receive what God wants to give. And I think that idea needs to be just probed a little bit more deeply, because I think it can explain some of the barrenness you might experience in the present church scene. Here's a lesson on receiving what God has promised. There's more to receiving from God than the expression of a, like a casual wish for his blessing. I mean, church, believe me, believe me. I know there's no need to fruitlessly wear people out with uh, empty repetition and forced times of trying to work up a crowd I think everyone can sense when emotions are being manipulated, 
reactions being pumped up through volume and key changes and the repetition of a few phrases over and over. People know what's going on. But that's not the only danger, and there's something else to consider. We, thinking about us right here in this room, we also still need enough time in the genuine presence of God to have our distracted hearts sort of drawn in, softened. We need enough time on our corporate knees to get our minds kind of wrapped around what we really need to be thinking about, what we really need to be praying about. We need enough time, for sure, we need enough time listening to God's Word to expose and correct the popular values of the surrounding culture that so quickly come to feel normal and even righteous in the body of Christ. We need enough time for the Holy Spirit to root down into the bottom of our hearts and root out sins that we'll never even discover in just two minutes in his presence. We won't even know the sins are there. And this, it kind of creates a huge problem for a church like ours. It's not one that we can easily diagnose. The problem is, We are being inconvenienced. That's how we feel. Inconvenienced when things take too long in any church gathering. We actually feel justified with our impatience when things don't roll along efficiently enough for our tastes. And while it's absolutely true, time shouldn't be wasted in worship, I think it's also true that large amounts of time are required for our worldly souls to open up to God, because our souls don't open up like a door instantly. It's more like a flower opens up. I'm amazed at how rarely this really registers. Do you know why God occasionally has people like you sitting through a long church service? It can be because it hasn't been properly thought through and planned. It's possibility one. Here's possibility too. One of the reasons people can sit through a two and a half hour movie but get edgy in an hour and 20 minute church service is we need the long church service once in a while to teach us that our time is not our own, that it belongs to Him. I talk frequently to pastors who are constantly trying to tailor worship services so they make the least possible imposition on the attendees. You'll get better crowds. Churches can work hard to give people church on their terms, traditional services, contemporary services, seeker-sensitive services, Services for, you know, left-handed people. Services for... But here's the thing. There is a problem with that. A slight problem, I think. 
Everyone, everyone gets to meet with God without ever sacrificing personal taste. We, we want, if we can, to make sure everybody is happy with their experience at church. And so we'll offer different types of services so, so people won't get anything that isn't according to their own taste. And we're doing this, apparently, to teach people that to follow Jesus at all is to die to self, pick up your cross daily, and follow him. And the way we're going to teach them to do this is we'll make sure there's nothing in any worship service that isn't according to their tastes. Does that make sense to you? All of it has the appearance of working. But it's, it's hard to teach people like me, let's just talk about me, that the very nature of following Christ is self-rule dies. And it's very hard to convey that message to people when your whole church is geared to making sure everything is according to their tastes. Properly embraced, I think, and understood worship before the throne of God. Think back, remember, to Isaiah 6. Saw the Lord high and lifted up. Worship before the throne of God isn't usually instantly delightful. Over a period of time, as we wait, worship can help create the hunger in our heart, and that's good if we have the patience for it. But the Holy Spirit comes, you know, like a dove. He doesn't kick the door down. He he entreats. He invites. I mean, you show the importance of someone, anyone, You show the importance of that person by the time you willingly take away from other things and devote to that person. Okay, point number three. The Holy Spirit responds to people whose hearts are filled with two things, intelligent praise and passionate thanksgiving. I want to read Acts chapter 4, 23 to 31. the account of Peter and John imprisoned and then released, and it reads like this, Acts 4, 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And remember what they said? They said, no more of this Jesus stuff. No more. Don't you go proclaiming Jesus anymore. That's what they said. 24. So they went to their people, they went to their church, Peter and John, and they said, here's what the chief priests have said to us, 24. And when they, the church, heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. That's a great way to start praying, by the way. We're not dealing with a little parochial God. We're dealing with the maker of everything. 
25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, there's their view of inspiration, by the way. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth, this is Psalm 2 they're quoting. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, Lord, look upon their threats. There's no, there's no real prayer for protection here. Did you notice that? Look upon their threats and grant, here's the request, grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Not, please, make sure they don't get mad at us again. No, it's, it's Lord, please, make sure we don't bow down to this nonsense and quit proclaiming Jesus. 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's in your Bible. I love these words. 431. When they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's what you want to see in a church service. People empowered by the Holy Spirit, people speaking God's word with boldness. Verse, verse 31 actually describes the result of some preceding events. I mean, the story starts with Peter and John. There seems so little to celebrate right off the bat, but the church knew, knew how to pray. The church, like King Jehoshaphat, that account that we looked at, they knew where the real battle was to be fought. Think about this for a minute. Here you are in this church with this regulation coming down, there are no petitions to sign. There are no Christian MPs to call. So they did what all Christians everywhere, all the time, are still supposed to do. They got together and they called on the God of heaven. The Holy Spirit moved upon the whole church. Peter and John were delivered from prison. But look carefully at the steps that led to this outpouring of power from on high. So A, here's what I want to look at. The people related their deliverance to the promises of God's word. You can see it in 25 to 27. Who, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, and said by the Holy Spirit. That's very significant. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Kings of the earth, they set themselves. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. 27, for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. This is so important. This church, it's, it's doing more than just sort of trying to throw some kind of hallelujah celebration and, and keep their chin up. This has almost nothing to do with that really overworked term, celebration in worship. 
It has nothing to do with kind of a glad-handed worship salesman calling people to cheer up. So important. Who do you hear speaking when you read your Bible? Look at that first part of verse 25. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. I want to talk about that just for a minute. Notice, not just David, who said by the mouth of David, So it's not just David or Moses or the Apostle Paul or Peter. Until you get this idea fixed in your mind that when when the Bible speaks, it's God. Until you get that idea fixed in your mind, especially when you read things in the Bible that make you feel uncomfortable, if you haven't got that idea through your mind, then just leave the Bible on the shelf. You're just creating your own religion anyway. It has nothing to do with Christianity anymore. The focus here is on the fulfillment of God's word among them. It's a big part of what the text means when it says they spoke the word with boldness. They were praying not just with a lot of passion, but with full minds. God's word was seen as God's word, a living word. They consumed it, expecting to be powerfully accomplished among them, all that God said. So two things happened. B, they responded to what God had done when they saw his hand at work. 24, and when they heard it, this word from David, but really by God himself, when they heard it, they lifted their voices, not just their thoughts. Together, this wasn't alone. They lifted their voices to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them, Notice that phrase, they lifted their voices together to God. There was no band backing them up. They just heard this word and they said, this is God. This is God. We have hope here because this is God. We can trust here because this is God. high congregational praise. This church was not affiliated in any way with the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada or the Assemblies of God or part of the charismatic movement. There were no denominations. Who told them to do this? Nobody told them to do it. They automatically understood the appropriateness of praise and thanksgiving to God. They didn't just passively hear. They responded to what they heard. It wasn't like pulling teeth. Tell you where I think they got the idea. They had their Bibles of that day. Probably they learned that idea of speaking praise to the Lord from passages like this. Is that on the screen behind me? Read it out loud with me, okay? Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Wasn't written by our general superintendent. This is the Spirit of God saying, when I speak and it's true and you have a promise and it's good, 
praise is so appropriate. See, the church was edified together. Their confident faith overflowed to those outside. 24, 31, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in them. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They continued to speak the word of God. This is the whole church. They continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Who taught these people to share their faith? Where did they learn to do it? What class did they attend? What podcast? They didn't take any course. They hadn't read a book. We do both those things in our church, and they're fine. They're good to do. But that's not what happened here. These people had, they had seen Jesus work. They had their circumstances, their lives changed. The place where they were worshiping had been shaken as they prayed. They were full of the Holy Spirit. They were excited, more excited about Jesus than they were about anything else. And how hard is it to share the best thing you have ever heard? Point number four. People must come to worship with hearts prepared for participation and involvement. I was looking at these words again, troublesome to some people. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers and sisters? When you, by the way, when I say that, it's, it's, I'm not editing. That term in the Greek refers to both male and female. So it's not like, I'm just trying to be politically correct so ladies don't get mad at me. That's not what's happening here, okay? What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things done for building up. I've dealt with that in the Pentecostal theology classes that I did. Those are online. That's not my point right now. The idea of coming into the house of the Lord with something on your mind and heart. Do you think about what God wants to do in and through your life on any given Sunday? Where are you going to serve? What are you going to add to what's going on? Will you start maybe Thursday or Friday? Will you start praying this week? Oh God, next Sunday. What is it? The 27th of November. What can I do to bless Cedarview Community Church when I walk through those doors? Other than sit and and have a theological download and leave, what, what, what can I do? What role does preparation play in your Sunday worship? Just real basic stuff. I need to do this in my own heart. Do, do you come into the sanctuary having already analyzed the present state of your own soul and spiritual health? 
Do I come into the sanctuary knowing what my real needs are? Do I come into the sanctuary with an idea of what God might think my deepest needs are? How am I growing in the expression of worship? How aware am I of what my gifts are and how they can be used in the body of Christ? Have you considered, maybe Thursday this week, will you start praying about the 27th? What people would you like me to be in touch with? Is there someone I should invite? Is there someone who needs my prayer? Is there someone that needs a word of encouragement? Lord, where are we going with this? Now, maybe those questions scare you. They do me too a little bit. That seems to be the way God works, though. Contrary to popular belief, he's not out just to soothe all of us all the time. One thing's for certain. Most of the growth I need probably isn't going to happen at the last minute without me even considering it. You don't grow your business that way. And you won't grow your walk with the Lord that way. Let's stay open to the Holy Spirit. Teach yourself even gradually not to fear his presence. It's Jesus, church. He doesn't do stupid things. And he's out to build it just however he would like to. And boy, I sure don't want Cedar View Community Church just to be one more church. We're, okay, we come, we go. Don't, don't you want the touch of Jesus on everything we do in this place and in your life? Doesn't that reach your heart?